0: Let's pray together. Father, help us, we pray now. We come to your word. Father, we're here today because at some point in our lives, this book called the Bible came alive to us. It didn't come alive to us. We came alive to it. And we recognize that this is your word. Not the mere word of men, but it is your word. And Father, we have experienced so much life and health and power and transformation and good from your word that we're hungry for your word again this day. Speak to us, we pray. Transform us, we pray. Father, the world has been trying to make us think its thoughts all week long. Father, help us now to think your thoughts after you. To help us to be transformed by that, not conformed to this world. Father, help us, we pray. Help us to work hard. Help us to change our way of thinking even. Help us to be open to your Holy Spirit's leading. Father, you have ordained that this book, the book of Ephesians, be written to that original church, then copies to be made and preserved for thousands of years so that we would hear your words as well. Help us now, we pray. Help us, we ask, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. You'll see from the bulletin that I've entitled this sermon, God's Magnum Opus. I don't normally use two Latin words to give a title to a sermon, but the word here is important. Magnum Opus. Magnum means is the Latin word for great. Opus is the Latin word for work. And so magnum opus means a great work, but it actually, especially means, and here I'm reading its definition, especially the greatest achievement of an artist or writer. That was his magnum opus. Uh, that was, it could be a painting, it could be, a, it could be a, a, a symphony. This was his magnum opus. And what we want to look at today is God's magnum opus, and I'm going to present to you the idea that the church... Is God's magnum opus. Now, obviously, all of redemption is God's magnum opus. The fact that God would redeem a people, send his son, reconcile us all to himself, that's God's magnum opus. But I want us to look today at something that is very unique, and, and it's one of the reasons why I wanted us to study through the book of Ephesians, this very unique place of the church. No book, no book speaks of the church as the book of Ephesians does, and that's why I want, to, I want us to look at this. Now, as you notice here, we're at a, a, a sort of a transition point in the book of Ephesians. In fact, if you look at Ephesians uh, chapter 3, it ends, that chapter ends with a doxology, now to him, verse 20, who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. That's, a, that's sort of a, 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 a stopping point there, okay? But then notice next what he does is he's going to begin to open up what he's taught in the last three chapters, Now, look at chapter 4 and verse 1. I, therefore, in light of all that we've been looking at, the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, the calling in which they were called was, was what he has been describing in the first three chapters. So, you're going to see us going back to the first three chapters as we move forward. And what Paul is going to do now is he's going to put his unique focus on the church And uh, and the place of the church in living out all that has been said before. Now, what I'm going to ask you to do is to do something in the next several weeks here. I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to open your mind. Not that you're all closed-minded and bigoted. That's not what I mean. But I want you to open your mind and open your heart to the Holy Spirit to be changed in the way that you and I think. To be changed. And the reason I want to, I, I, I'm kind of making this appeal, is because you and I live in a culture. We live in a world, and it, it's kind of like if you walk into a room that's full of smoke, and then you walk out of that room, and then you walk over into another room. And somebody says, "You smell like smoke." And oh, do I? Yeah, I picked it up from in there. We live in a culture that is hyper individualistic, hyper individualistic, and what the Bible calls us to when we're Christians is to leave that in a very real sense and to begin to identify ourselves not as individuals but as a, a corporate body of people, as, as the church, as the body of Christ and, and such. And, I, and I, I'm going to ask you that as you're l- listening to this word and looking at this word that you open yourself up to that, that, we would, that our minds... See, redemption is supposed to transform our thinking process. For instance, look at chapter 4 in verse 30, 23, just jumping ahead in Ephesians. Paul says, and be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Redemption, renewal, it changes our thinking process. Uh, in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2, Paul writes this, and do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, now notice the next phrase, by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And so uh, as, we, as we look at the church today, I, I, I'm hoping that this, this will be part of the process of renewing our mind and, and over the weeks ahead. So what I'm going to look at is why I called this the God's magnum opus. And then second, we're going to look at what does it mean when we use the phrase church. And then we're going to do an overview, uh, a brief overview of what Paul has says in the book of Ephesians, and then we're going to apply this to ourselves. Why do I call the church the magnum opus? Why did I use that as sort of an illustration? Well, I think it's because we see in the scriptures the important place of the church, especially in the book of Ephesians. For instance, look at Ephesians 3.21, where we we're kind of uh, are at in our regular exposition where Paul says, to him be glory in the church, By Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now, a couple things about that verse. Some of your Bibles say in the church and Christ Jesus, almost dividing them up. That and does not appear in the original language. 97% of the Greek texts don't have it. That's part of the critical Greek text. Sadly, it, it found its way into some of your translations. That shouldn't be there this translation in the King James uh, New King James is very accurate. It says this, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus, or even in Christ Jesus, because the same word is used. But notice this, to God be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. I think the King James says world without end. In other words, God's purpose is to be glorified in his church forever and ever and ever by the church. And we've already seen some of this, the importance of the church in the saving purposes of God. Remember chapter three and verse 10? Remember how Paul talked about how he was called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ? Verse eight and to make all to see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God, who created all things through Jesus Christ. Verse 9. Now look at verse 10. To the intent that now the manifold uh, wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. It is God's intention that his amazing wisdom... His amazing wisdom in, in creating a world and, and allowing it to fall and, and bringing redemption and sending His Son and his, the cross, his Son dying upon the cross and redeeming a people and calling them together and uniting them with Christ. This is, this is such a, a manifold, amazing witness of God. And God's dis- displaying all of that great wisdom of His by this thing called the church And look who's looking at it in this verse. And all the principalities and powers and angels and archangels and demons and archdemons and all of those invisible principalities and powers are looking in and looking at the church and through the church are seeing the manifold witness of God. Or another one, see the church as the magnum opus. Chapter 2 and verse 7. He's in the context of talking about the church, and we're going to look at 122 here real soon. But in chapter 2 and verse 7, look what it says. That in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Here, the us there is the church. The, the, it's been identified as that in chapter 1 and verse 22. Notice what he's saying here. God's purpose is that, throughout all of the ages of of eternity future, that he is going to pour out his grace, show forth his grace, show his kindness, magnify his grace through us, through the church. And so you see, the church is the magnum opus. It is is the focus. It It is what God is doing in redemption for his glory. Now, what does the Bible then mean when it uses the phrase church? What is the church? What does that mean? Well, we're going to allow the, the scriptures to, to fill that in for us in the positive way, but let me sort of divest ourselves of some of the negatives uh, that it doesn't, it doesn't mean when the Bible uses the word church, because we've, many of us, we pick up uh, false and in, inaccurate views of the church, fuzzy concepts that, that uh, become prevalent and simply aren't true. Number one, the church, when it's referred to in the Bible, is not a building. The church is not a building. This building is not a church, okay? This is not a church. Brick and mortar does not make the church, okay? This is a church building. This is a building. Our forefathers used to call it a meeting house. They didn't even want to, they didn't even want to attach the word church. So when I wrote a little, I kind of had a little catechism that I made. A catechism is question and answer. For my children when they were growing up, who is God, who is Jesus? And one of them that I did, and this was for very, very little children so that they would memorize it, and I would say, what is the church? And they would answer, the church is the people of God. And that's what it is. The church is not a building. Secondly, the church is not a conglomeration of programs and activities. And this is actually the most prevalent view of the church in evangelical circles. It is is just a a conglomeration of programs and activities and and, and all kinds of... It's just an an active hub of of stuff going on. Uh, In fact, we just had our harvest party last weekend. And uh, this week, somebody informed Jan that there's actually an organization that you can hire to come in and do your harvest party for you every year. And uh, and I'm like... (laughs) Yeah, it doesn't surprise me. But anyway, uh, but, but churches program, churches busy doing programs, doing program-oriented churches where pastors become CEOs and pastors become program directors. And I've actually heard out of the mouth of pastors saying, yeah, at the end of the week, we run so many programs, we're all so exhausted. I have about 15 minutes on a Saturday night to prepare a sermon. I said, that's why you have to run a lot of programs, because you don't have preaching that is building the church up. You have programs that are keeping people entertained. The church is not a conglomeration of programs and activities. The church is not an institution in that sense. The church is not an institution, merely a legal name with a constitution and bank accounts and, and, and a non-profit status. The church has those elements to it. There are institutional aspects. There are elders and there are deacons. There are officers and such like that. But that's not what the church means when the Bible speaks in those terms. The church, fourthly, is not identified by a person. See, in the Roman Catholic Church, for instance, the entire church is embodied in the pope. The pope is is, and and statements do like this come out of the Pope, the Pope, I am the church. The church is united in one person. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, the Metropolitans, they become the embodiment, their bishops become the embodiment of the actual body of Christ. And that's not true. That's not what the church is at all. Now, evangelicals have their own popes. You know, evangelicals have their own popes. And uh, I, I noticed this much more in the South than up here, but you see it up here too, sadly. You drive, by, you drive down south, you drive through, and we used to live in the south. You drive down south, there's this massive church with a big, big picture, a big uh, uh, sign. And the sign says, first something, church of something. And then uh, there's a, but there's a picture, an actual portrait or picture of the pastor. And it says, you know, Reverend Billy Bob Carter, pastor. And it's like, that's Reverend Billy Bob Carter's church. That's his church. That's not what the church is. That's not what the church is. Finally, fifthly, is this. There are not two churches. You see, some people talk like to talk about the universal church and the local church, okay? And they talk about them as if they're two different churches. Now, theologians do use the phrase universal church and local church to help us. The universal church, they'll, they'll say, is all believers, all believers, all the elect, all who have been united to Christ, all believers both in heaven and on earth. They'll they'll talk about the church triumphant, they're the the ones in heaven, and the church militant, they're the ones on earth who are still fighting uh, against the principalities and powers. Or they'll talk about the communion of saints, or all all Christians worldwide being the universal church. Although the Bible never speaks in terms of universal versus local. And now the way you find this being used today is that people use the concept of the universal church in order that they would not have to be involved in the local church. They, 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 they invariably use this kind of terminology because they don't want the connections, the, the, the responsibilities, the, 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 the sense of being under any kind of authority. They don't want to have any kind of accountability. And so they'll say something like this. Well, I'm a member of the universal church. I, I'm involved with the universal church, but I'm not a member of a local church. That is blatantly unbiblical language, and it is actually nonsensical language. In fact, it reminds me, it always reminds me very much of the way socialists like to speak. If you study the socialist movement, especially Marxism, and then as it it showed itself in its true colors in the Soviet Union and then in, in communist China, they always would like to talk about their love for humanity. Even today, socialists like to talk about their love for humanity. We want to bring equality to humanity. We love humanity. We're for humanity. You know what? Nobody has butchered humanity more than socialists have. Stalin alone butchered more people, and Mao Zedong butchered more people than almost anybody else ever on the planet. You see, socialists love humanity. It's just people they don't like. It's humans they don't like. They they torture them. They jail them. They starve them. They send them to the gulag. They do whatever for the love of humanity. And that's the same way that people they talk about the, the local church as if uh, they despise the local church but they but they but they, they I love Jesus and I want to be a part of the universal church but I don't want anything to do with the local church. That's that's absolute nonsensical when you read the Bible. The Bible never makes that distinction. In fact, the local church is the con- the capital T H E the concrete manifestation of the whole body of Christ. It's how it's manifested. It's where you see it. That's where it is. If somebody say, where is the universal church? Say, well, go find a local body of believers and look at that local body of believers. And there you'll see a, the universal church in microcosm. That's, the, what the, 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 that's how the Bible speaks. And these, these lines are so blended. And this is what we're going to see in the book of Ephesians, how these lines all blend. Now, Paul doesn't see, you know, oh, now I'm talking about the universal church. Now I'm talking about the local church. Paul's going to talk about the church. He's going, to talk about, he's going to talk about great, great, wide, grandiose things, and then he's going to talk about caring for, about one another, loving one another, using your gifts with one another. He's going to see that all as once. I kind of illustrate it like this. Think of bees. Bees. Yeah, bees. Bees. Think of bees. Bees. Think of the Worldwide Brotherhood of Bees. All the bees out there. And think of this. How, where are bees? Like, Where are the bees? I'm I'm thinking of honeybees now. Where would you find the bees? You find them in colonies. You find them in hives. Bees have to be together. They have to work together. They can only survive together. Now, if some bee came flying up to you and says, and you say, where do you live? And he would say, I don't live anywhere. I don't live. I'm an independent bee. I just believe in the universal brotherhood of bees. I'm not a member of any colony anywhere. You know what you're talking to? You're talking to a dead bee. You know why? because he ain't even gonna survive the night. He needs the colony. He cannot exist. Bees can't exist. And the same thing we're gonna see in the of the church. Apart from the church, an individual Christian doesn't exist. They, they dry up, they die, they, they, they atrophy. They, we need this body. It would be like cutting off a piece of my finger, cutting off my finger and, and putting it aside and watching how it decays and it dies apart from the body. And that's how, that's how the apostle is going to look. That's what we're going to, to be looking at is this idea of the church. So let's, let's try to begin to think, not begin because I know many of you do, but let's, let's try to make advancement in our thinking of the church, of the church as the magnum opus, of the church and how important it is as we go through the book of Ephesians right now. We're going, to take a, we're going to take a quick ride through the book of Ephesians right now. Remind ourselves of some things that we looked at, see some things that we haven't looked at before. Trying to renew our minds to grasp, help our minds to grasp how God thinks about this people called the church. Ephesians, look, turn with me to Ephesians chapter one, verse one. Paul says, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to the saints who are in Ephesus now and faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, when the Bible uses the word saint, it is not speaking of, like the Roman Catholic Church does, of these special, super spiritual people who have been set aside. Get that completely out of your mind. That's totally unbiblical thinking. What the Bible calls saints is any believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Anybody who has been saved by Christ. And what saint means is being set apart, sanctified, made part of a unique, special, set-apart people. And that's what Paul means here. And so Christians far and wide are called saints. So Paul is writing this to the saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, we've already looked at in great detail how he then begins. He begins by talking about the fact that God chose chose us, look at verse 4, in him before the foundation of the world. That's what we looked at in an adult Sunday school class this morning. God shows us, us these saints, these people, in him before the foundation of the world. And he adopted us, predestined us to adoption, verse 5, in, by Christ Jesus according to the good pleasure of his will. So God has these people that he's chosen, that he is uh, predestined to be adoption into adoption. And then we've looked in through the rest of chapter 1. He redeems them by the blood of his son. He he gives them everlasting life. He gives them an inheritance. He gives them the Holy Spirit as a down payment. He has these people that are his people, and he's forming them together. And then at the end of chapter 1, Paul starts one of his two prayers that we've studied. And then Paul says something amazing. Now, before I I, I talk about this, I want to introduce to you a Greek word. And the reason I'm doing this is that this Greek word has actually become controversial. It's always been controversial in certain circles. And and I want to begin introducing it because I want to open up that controversy uh, probably beginning of next year, uh, having to do with roles in the church and things like that. And it's the Greek word kephale. Kephale. And kephale means head. That's just, just, just the... The, the use of the word is just kephalae means head, okay? But it has two meanings, just like we use the word head. When you use the word head, it can mean your cranium right here, this thing. This is the kephala, This is the head. And as, the, as the, the head of a body, as the place where the brain is held, as it were, the head is the nerve center, sort of the vital life center. You can, you can cut this, my arm off. You can cut this arm off. You can cut this leg off. You can cut this leg off. I'm still alive. I'm still alive. I'm not very happy, but I'm alive. You cut my head off, I'm dead. You leave all my arms and legs and cut my head off, I'm dead. It is the life source. And the Bible uses the phrase head like this. But we also use the word head in another way. Who's the head of this organization? Who's the head of this, of this company? Who's the CEO? CEO, head, somebody who has authority, somebody who is, is the one by whom other people are submissive to. The Bible uses both of those, and for the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible uses those words both at the same time, oftentimes. And we're going to see this right now in, in in a few verses. Look at chapter one and verse nineteen. Paul says, "And what is the exceeding greatness of His power toward us who believe, according to the working of His power, in which He worked in Christ Jesus, when He raised Him from the dead and seated Him at the right hand at His right hand in the heavenly places." far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come and has put all things under his feet and gave him to be head over all things to the church. Now let's stop there. Look at Jesus. He has been made kephale, verse 22, over what? All things, all principalities, all powers. And those principalities, some of them are very good, nice nice principalities and powers. They're angels. They're archangels. And some of them are very wicked principalities and powers. They're demons. They're Satan himself. Christ has been made, Kephali, head, a th- ruler, authority over all things. They have all been placed under his feet, and he has been placed on a, thor- on a throne. This is the idea of Kephali as a CEO, as a chief, as a president, as number one, as the one through whom we are all accountable and we must all obey. That's how Paul is using the word here. It can't have any other meaning. Jesus isn't the, the, the head, as it were, the, 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 in terms of the, the, the living life source of all the demons and principalities. That's grotesque. But notice, in terms of the church, that's exactly who he is. Notice how Paul then shifts this, this, this imagery. He says, and Jesus, by the way, Jesus is CEO, president, chief, head over the church. Okay. No question about that as well. He's that, in that sense of capital. But then notice how he shifts it as well. He then brings in the idea of head and body. Look at, look at verse 22. And he put all things under his feet and gave him to be head of all things to the church. Now let's stop here for a second. Jesus Christ has been placed to the highest place of all authority over all of the world. Jesus himself said this. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. I am the the, the king of all kings, the lord of all lords. I rule over everything, everybody, all things except for God my Father. I'm head over all things to the church, for the church. For the sake of the church, for the well-being of the church, for the protection of the church, for the edification of the church, for the building up of the church, for the triumph of the church, I rule the whole universe for the church. That's wild. That's amazing. It's nothing compared to what he says next. Look at what he says next. Verse 23, which is his body the fullness of him who fills all in all. How can somebody who fills all in all, who is the king of all kings, the lord of all lords, the sovereign of all things, the ruler of all things, the one through whom all things were created, far above all principalities and powers, has all authority, all majesty, all glory, how can he who fills all in all still be filled by something? And in the mystery of that, that something that fills him is the church. The church. Dear ones, if you ever have somebody come to you and say, I love Jesus, but I don't love the church, I'm committed to Jesus, but I'm not committed to the church, you take them to this verse and you say, This: You just told me you're not committed to the very thing that fills He who has all, who fill, who is full, uh, who fills all in all. His very body, his bride, his special ones. The ones for whom he rules the whole world. And you don't have a part of that? You don't want to have a part of that? What does it mean, the fullness of him who fills all in all? When I preached this, I illustrated it by marriage. I said, when a, when a man and a woman marry, before they marry, they are full, complete human beings. They're absolutely full and complete. Maybe they haven't even met yet. And, and they're full and complete human beings. Then they meet, they fall in love, and then they marry, and in a mysterious way, the two become one. It's like their very personalities become intertwined. Their, their, their whole life becomes intertwined. And, and, and that oneness develops in that. And, and that. and then if one of them were to die, that person were to say, I feel like half of me is being buried right now. She fulfills, she fills me up. He fills me up. There's a fullness here, and I think that's what's being said here, especially by what is being said in chapter 5. But notice here the centrality and importance of the church and who the church is. And then Paul goes on to talk about the fact that we are that, that, that God in chapter 2 raises us from the dead and, and, and unites us with Christ and raises us up with Christ and seats us in the heavenly places in Christ and that for all of eternity God is planning that he is going to pour out his grace upon the church. We saw that. But then in chapter three, uh, chapter 2 and verse 11, Paul talks about the fact that God is bringing together Jew and Gentile. He's bringing them together and he's making one new humanity. So there's no longer Jew, there's no longer Gentile, There's one new humanity, and this one new humanity in Christ has been reconciled both to God through the cross and to one another. And so we have access to God. And then look at verse 19 at chapter 2. And then he says this, that we are fellow citizens with all of the saints. We are members of God's household and family. And then he changes the imagery and he starts talking about a building with a foundation and stones. And, 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 and this building that is being built is a temple. Look, verse 21. In whom the whole building and temple is being fitted together, it grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In whom you also, you plural, also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. You, the church. This united group of people, this one people, this one humanity is also the temple of God. It is the living, breathing temple, this temple made of people. And you know, this is a Jewish person who's writing this, the Apostle Paul. The temple in Jerusalem is still standing. And he says that has come to utter insignificance. And God is going to destroy it in 70 AD. Utter insignificance. You are the temple. And these people reading this letter in Ephesians can look right out the window and they would see one of the great wonders of the world, the temple to Artemis. And Paul says, that is utterly insignificant. You are the temple of God. You are the dwelling place. You, the church, are the dwelling place of God in the spirit. Then, of course, in chapter 3, we've looked at where he has gone, and he's talked about the manifold wisdom being shown to the principalities and powers. And then in verse 14, he starts this amazing prayer. And look at verse 15. He says, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named. There's the church. There's the church. And in this amazing prayer, we looked about the fact that that God is speaking, and he ends it, uh, uh, that Paul is, is praying what God has done, and he ends it by saying, verse 21, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus for all generations. The church, the church, the church. Then in chapter four, he's going to introduce the church as this living body of Jesus. That, that, that Jesus is the head and, and and his life pulsates through this thing called the church and that it's made of many parts and each of those parts are united and, and yet different. And they, and they minister to one another and that this is what the church is and, and notice that he talks about the fact that this body, this living body of believers uh, coming together and then look at what he says in verse 16, from whom the whole body joined in it together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes the growth of the body for the edifying itself in love. The church is the body of Christ, he talks about. Christians will flourish in that body of believers. We cannot flourish outside of that body of believers and we're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. But then turn with me to chapter 5. The final look and I think in some ways the apex of the whole thing is when Paul starts to address wives and husbands. And we're not going to talk about marriage at this point. We're going to talk about the theology undergirding Paul what Paul talks about in marriage because here Paul is going to speak and once again he's going to use kephalē and he's going to use kephale in both meanings. Kephale as, as, as the, the vital nerve center for the whole thing. And then he's going to use kephale as authority, CEO, chief. He begins with that. Notice what he says in verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is head of the church. He is the savior of the body. Now, he's introducing both. Kephile is CEO and Kephile is head over a body. But notice he begins first with CEO because notice the next verse. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let wives be to their own husband. And there, the idea of, of rulership, of authority, of CEO, the church is subject to Christ. Christ is our head, he is our CEO, he is our president, he rules over us, okay? Then in verses 25 and following, Paul talks about the church as being Christ's bride. The bride. And he continues with this imagery of husbands and wives. And notice what he says. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. So church as bride. Church as beloved. Church as so loved that Jesus died for the church. He gave his life for the church. Look at verse 26, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So there's the idea of the church being Christ's beloved bride. And then he talks about the church as being the body of Christ, as husbands ought to see their wives as their own bodies. Look at verse 28. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies, for he who loves his wife loves himself, because he's loving is she is his body. She is one with him in that sense. And then he goes on to say this. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. He sees the church as his body, and he loves his body, and he nourishes and cares for his body. Notice how he goes on to say this. For we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, one body. Husbands, this is why you should love your wives like your own body, and you should care for her as as you care for yourself because you are one with her. But that's not what Paul's primary point is here because notice what he says in verse 32. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. Christ and the church. Christ is one with his church. He's one body with his church. He's the head. We are the body. And there is this unique union of us. We are members of his body. Now, in light of all of this, we go back to chapter 4 and verse 1. Paul says this. After all that he has taught of us in in Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 about God's grace, about God's work, he says this. I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you. To walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. What's the calling by which we were called? What's the calling? The calling by which we were called is we were called into this corporate entity called the church. We were called. We we, We are living stones within the church, within the temple. We are part of the body of Christ. We are part of the family of God. We are, part, we are a vital organ. We are part of an, of, of an overall organic body, which is Christ's body, his flesh and his bones. We are members of the bride of Christ who are beloved. We are sheep in his flock. We are, we are the branches of this, of this mighty vine. We are not to see ourselves as individuals. We are to see ourselves corporately. We are a part of this whole thing. We are part of this glorious magnum opus. We are the people who are stunning the principalities and powers because God has been so good and gracious to us. They're in shock. They're looking on. They're seeing the manifold wisdom of God by seeing this body, this group of people called the church. We are for the glory of God. We are the central purpose of creation. We are why God created the world. We are why God sent his son. We are why God is going to have a new heavens and new earth. We are so that he can display these people, these trophy, this magnum opus of what he has done by his grace and his mercy through his son and display it forever, what we are. And that's who we are as the body of Christ. That's who we are. And we need to begin to see ourselves as this and think of ourselves as this and get our identity as this. This is who we are. Secondly, so we need to know who we are. We need to know who we are. Secondly, we need to be thankful for who we are. We need to be thankful. I love how this book is actually a book of praise. Genesis, uh, Ephesians 1, 3 blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every blessing in this heavenly places in Christ Jesus just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world predestined us to be his children to the praise of his glory of his grace sent his son to praise be to you praise be to you and this whole section ends with verse, chapter 3 and verse 20 now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in him to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus. It's all about praise. He's bursting into praise. And you and I shot to be there right with him. Let me ask you this. Why were you included in the church? Why are you a part of the we? You see, we need to start seeing ourselves more and more as we, as the body, as this people. As this body of Christ. But why are we. Why am I part of we. Why are you a part of us. Why are we a part of this glorious body of Christ. Who are we that we should be here. Think of all of our sins. Think of all of our shortcomings. Think of all of our backslidings. Think of all the times we have been tempted into sin. And we actually followed along with the temptation. And forsook God. Think of how we we were born in trespasses, and think of our rebellion. Think of our lives before Christ. Think of our lives after Christ. Think of what we are. Think of who we are. Why are we? How in the world can I be part of the saints, the temple of God, the family of God, the bride of Christ, part of his body, alive through his life? How did that happen to such a wretched, foolish, wicked, backsliding, hot and cold, lukewarm person like me? Justification, forgiveness, the blood of Christ. How did this happen? It happened by grace. It happened by love. It happened when I don't deserve it. It happened for the glory of God. And we ought to be thankful for that. We ought to be thankful. That we are part of the saints. That we are part of the body. And then finally, we ought to live this out. Live out who we are. So know who you are. Know, be thankful for who we are. And then live out who we are. And isn't that what chapter 4 and verse 1 is saying? I, therefore, the prisoner of God, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Live out who you are. Dear ones, wake up tomorrow morning and go off to work or do whatever you're going to do tomorrow and say, I am a royal child of the living God. I am a saint. I am a member of the body of Christ. I am a stone in the living temple of God. I have been adopted as a child of God. I am a member of the greatest kingdom the world will ever know, the kingdom that will triumph and conquer over all. That's who I am. And Paul is saying here, the Holy Spirit is saying here through Paul, and live your life that way. Live your life worthy of the calling of who you are. Don't degrade it. Don't degrade who you are. Don't degrade the body of Christ. Don't degrade the church. Don't degrade the bride. Don't degrade the temple. Don't degrade this great, wonderful body of believers. Don't degrade it by your life. Glorify him. Glorify him. Live this out in who you are. You are a child of God. And let it beam through wherever you live. You say, yeah, Todd, but you know what? what, We shouldn't be proud about this. No, we should not. In fact, look at the very first thing Paul outlines that we should be. Look at chapter 2, 4, verse 2. With all lowliness... With all lowliness, humility, lowliness. You say, how does that work? I'm a child of God. I'm a member of the Holy Temple. Yeah, yep, we are. By grace, we don't deserve it. It was unmerited favor. And the true Christian, who clearly grasp the stuff, understands the immense, beautiful privilege and glory that God has given them to be a part of this body, and yet also understands that it was so undeserving that it is all of grace, that they don't reflect that as if they're proud, they reflect it as if they're grateful and humble that I would be welcomed in. Oh, dear ones, let's live our lives as who we actually are. And finally, let me say to any of you here who are unbelievers, you're unsaved. You're lost. You've come here, but you didn't really want to come here. God is not significant to you. What's significant to you is this world. What's significant to you is your happiness in it. What's significant to you is your friends, your fun, your stuff, your pleasures. What's significant to you is you. And you are the center of your existence. You're the center of this universe. But I want to tell you something, dear one. I want to tell you something. You are an outsider to all of the other things that we have just talked about. You are not a royal child of God. You are not in his temple. You are not forgiven. You are not saved. You are not justified. You have not been adopted by God. You have no right to come near the God of the universe. You are outside of the kingdom of God because you have chosen to be outside the kingdom of God. And you have chosen a world that he has marked for destruction and that he is going to destroy. And one day the gates of heaven are going to close, and they're going to close forever. And and let us hope that you are not on the outside. And one day the gate over hell is going to close, and it is going to close forever. And in that cauldron of wickedness and darkness and evil and punishment and remorse, those gates will close. You will hear them clang shut, and they will never open again, and you will be lost forever. Why? Because you love TikTok so much because you loved your own fantasy so much because you loved your own little world so much because you, you thought the celebrities were so great you will be shut out you will be, un, you will be lost you will be held accountable for your own sins Jesus' blood will not atone for you, you will be gone you will be dead, you will be treated as an outsider, you will be outside forever in utter darkness in utter flame, in utter fire but now dear ones, now Until Christ returns, now is the day of salvation. Right now, do you know what God is doing right now all around the world? And he's doing it right here in this room. God is saying, invite them in. Go into the highways and byways. Invite them in. Warn them of the wrath to come. Invite them to come. Tell them I welcome them. Tell them I'll give them everlasting life. Tell them I'll bring them into my temple and make them my uh, a, a stone in my own temple. Tell them that, 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 that I will make them a part of the bride of my son. Tell them that I will give them everlasting life. Tell them that there is forgiveness available to them. Tell them, repent, repent, repent. Turn from the world. Turn from these sinful things. Turn from this love of yourself. Turn from your sin and turn to me and I will give you life and I will give you forgiveness and I will give you eternal life and I will save you forever. And when the gates of heaven hell clang shut. You will not hear them. You will be on the inside of the kingdom. And when the gates of heaven clang shut so that no one will ever come in again, you will be in paradise. You will be with me. Dear ones, today is the day of salvation. Satan is lying to you. This world is lying to you. Its money will not make you happy. Its pleasures will not make you happy. You will not be fulfilled and you will die and you will perish apart from Jesus Christ. But there he is, He stands above all principalities and powers. He has the power to save, and he is offering you, come to me, come to me, and all who come to me, I will not cast one of them aside. Oh, come to the Lord Jesus Christ. May God open your eyes. May God lift the veil. May God grant you help. May God draw you to himself. And if there's anything right now that is holding you back, sever the tie, sever the tie. If it's a friend, if it's a sin, if it's a lust, sever the tie, because that will drag you into hell. And go fleeing to him and he will give you the strength and the power and and the life will come flowing from the head into the body and you will find eternal life in Jesus. He is your only hope. Let's pray together. Oh dear Lord Jesus, thank you that in a sin-sick world, in a rebellious, ugly world that sneers at you and that rebels against you, that in your grace and love you have come and you not only died for us, you offer us everlasting life. Oh, Lord Jesus, I pray for any here who need to turn from their sins, open their eyes and hear their cry, hear their cry As they cry out, Lord Jesus, please save me. These chains are so tight. The world's pulling is so deep. Save me. Oh, Lord Jesus, come and deliver them. Come and, and save them. Come and help them in their helplessness. Give them eternal life. And Lord, for those of us who can say, we are the body of Christ. We are the saints. We are the adopted, beloved children of God. We are in Christ. Oh, Father, thank you. We do constantly say, who am I? But then we turn and we see your grace. We say, I am who I am because of the grace of God. Thank you. Thank you. Help us to leave this place and to live And to live out a life worthy of the calling that you have called us to. We pray this in your precious name. Amen.